keep saying this because we keep getting closer. It's almost to the end. Next week I'll be doing the last sermon that I'm going to be doing in the book of Acts, and then John's going to kind of bring it on home. He's the anchor man in the relay, and he gets to sprint for the finish. Um, so we are, um, you know, it, it's been good, but again, as we say, as we've been saying for almost a, more than a year now, this isn't just a slogan, it isn't just the kind of a catchy phrase that we want for our Acts series. This is prayer for our church, that our church would continue to be on the path of becoming His church. And whatever that means, whatever that looks like, because we're, we're not sure about all that. All we know is that if we're His church, we're going to have some of the things that we found here in the book of Acts that are just have to be part of the church that where Jesus Christ is Lord, where the Holy Spirit abounds. We're going to, we, we know that no matter what it looks like at the center of all we do, at the foundation of all we do, in fact, in all we do is going to be God's Word. It's going to be His Spirit. It's going to be Jesus Christ. We know that, that whatever it is as we become His church and whatever it looks like, it's going to abound in love, not just for God, not just for Jesus, not just for His Word, but abound in love for each other. That we will seek to be more and more this this united one body in Christ. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we know this. We know it's going to mean we are going to, in, in many different ways, be bringing the gospel to the world. We're going to be showing the gospel to the world in how we live and how we love and in our faith, but we're also going to be bringing the gospel to the world in many different ways. I don't know about you, but I think one of the tests, if we really understand what it means to be in Christ, if we really understand when we're experiencing new life in Christ, when I say things like that, that gets you excited. That gets you like, I don't know what it's going to look like either, but I want that. I want to be that kind of church. I want to have that kind of community. I want to have that kind of ministry. I want that. And I want it not just for me, but I want it because in Christ, I know we become this, this testimony to the world. We become this, 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 like, this, this evidence of what Christ has done. And it's not just so I can experience it and say I had this great experience. But it's so that together, more and more of our community and our state and our world can be reached for Christ. And so we come to the last chapter of the book of Acts. And Paul's been having a pretty eventful, you know, last few weeks, which is, you know, at the, after a pretty eventful last couple of years. And last week we left him, dawn was about to come, they were eating on the ship, there was this big storm happening, but they realized they're getting closer to shore. And in verse 1, it says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, 
But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Again, it's, you know, this, this in and of itself, this part of Acts is just, just a great story. There's just things that you just don't expect to happen suddenly happen, you know, plot twists and all of that. You know, you think like Paul's finally going to get to go to Rome and then all of a sudden there's this big storm and, and they're caught in the storm and then they're shipwrecked and they get to the island and then they get to this island and all of a sudden, you know, he gets bit by a snake. A snake. But I want us to look real quickly at these native people. And it, the, the, the way that it's, that it's talked about, it says these native people showed us unusual kindness. So first thing we see is this unusual kindness. They, they see these people that are just, they've been at sea for like in the middle of a terrible storm and they finally are just kind of getting up to the beach. And they get, they get there and they says unusual kindness because, man, you get to the beach and it's not like they're laying on the beach and drying off and it's sunny. Remember, it's winter. It's cold and it's raining. And so they, they build a fire. But then we jump down a little bit to verse 4, and we see like these same people that show kindness, they're pretty quick to judge. You know, Paul picked up these sticks to put on the fire. Now, first of all, that tells us a lot about Paul that we talked about on Wednesday night. And by the way, if you want more of that kind of stuff, Come Wednesday, or at least listen to the recordings. But Paul is there. And by the way, Paul is cold too. Paul is wet too. Paul is tired too. But Paul is helping. He picks up these sticks, and apparently what had happened is this poisonous snake had become, you know, there's a technical term for it, but basically like a stick because it was kind of sleeping. It's cold. And then as he, as he approaches the fire, kind of wakes up. And it says it's hanging from his arm. And they're quick to judge. They're like, they don't even know this guy. They just know this guy made it to shore with everybody else. And then they're like, this guy must be a murderer. You want the proof? Well, he was, he was in the sea and now when he comes to shore and he's saved, he gets bit by a snake. That's proof right there. What more proof do you need? Um, in fact, that word justice, it's, it's actually the name for the, the, the Greek goddess that, that is the goddess of justice. See, she got him. You know, it's almost like the whole shipwreck was his fault. In a way, they were right but not the way they thought. But it's like the whole shipwreck was his fault because the, ju the justice was trying to gonna get him because he was a murderer. And then he miraculously escapes, but justice is like, nope, still going to get you. Snake bites him. But then I want you to jump down to verse 6. And it's kind of a weird story because they're like, Yep, he's going to die. Nobody tries to help him. Nobody seems to do anything except they're just watching. They're watching. They're waiting for him to, to you know, swell up, start having the symptoms of, you know, having venom. Doesn't happen. So what happens? Verse 7. They changed their minds. Said he was a god. So you're a murderer, 
because you escaped a shipwreck and then you got bit by a snake. That's proof. But then you didn't die from the snake, so now that's proof you're a god. Kind of crazy. We like these people. They're nice. They help these, you know, good, good people. They, they help these people. But then we look at this and we go, what's going on here? How can people flip so fast based on very little evidence? They go from he's a murderer to he's a god. Nothing in between. No other possibilities. And I think what Luke is, is helping us do here is, is, is Luke is helping us begin to see, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but he's helping us to, to see, and he's really helping his readers. Remember, his readers, a lot of his readers aren't Christians. A lot of his readers are, are Romans who, for whatever reason, either don't know much about Christianity or hate Christians. And he's trying to explain to them who they are, and he's really connecting with the kind of beliefs they might have had. The kind of beliefs that aren't necessarily based on like what we would call evidence. And that how their value system kind of makes this nonsensical flipping around from thing to thing. You know, it if we bring it to the modern day, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, it really looks at, like, what's going on in our culture today. More and more in our culture, we've been, you know, there's this embracing of, of you know, there are no, there is no absolute truth. There is, you know, they're not even saying there's not just absolute truth from the Bible. They're saying there's no absolute truth at all. In fact, their argument is the only absolute is there's no absolutes. And so, they, you know, that, that's kind of more and more the premise. As we were talking about, about last week, more and more the premise is we started as a cosmic accident, we're going to end as a cosmic accident. If you really think about that, nothing really matters unless you decide it matters. Well, some of you know, like, I'm a fan of, like, sci-fi, and I'm not going to lie, I like the and special effects, and I like the, you know, the cool laser battles and all that. But the other reason, and I would like to say, at least the more sophisticated part of me would like to say, the, the real reason I watch sci-fi is because of the, you know, I like to see, like, the, the worldviews. I like to see the, the, how they're, what they're saying about modern society and about where society is going, because a lot of science fiction, um, that's what it's doing. It's trying to tell you, like, and, you know, there's basically two big groups. Well, there's one big group and one smaller group. The biggest group that you see today is what's called dystopia. In other words, the future is going to be dystopia, D-Y-S. You ever heard of a dysfunctional family? Same idea. Dystopia is, you know, things have fallen apart. Things are horrible. Everything we're doing now is contributing to that terrible thing that's going to come in the future. And then the other one is this view of what's called uh, utopia. And utopia is, this is where things are going to be good. And there's different parts in history where, you know, science fiction is more utopia than dystopia. Now we live in the world of mostly dystopia. But I was watching, um, you know, I was, I was watching one that's more in the side of utopia. And it has all these basic premises. This universe, this natural world is all that there is. No beginning, you know, no, no creator, nothing like that. And what I, as I was watching, they, this episode was dealing with death. And this is what was said, and, and said this. You know why death is important? Because death makes life valuable. Knowing that you're not going to have this forever makes you treasure it more. Makes it more valuable. 
Really? And I thought about that. And I thought, like, well, then a dog's life must be much more valuable than a human life because it's shorter. Maybe the, the fact that my wife treats my, our dog better than she treats me actually makes sense. It follows this logic, right? He's only going to be here for, you know, a few more years. I've got to pour my love on this guy, right? You're going to be around. I'll get to you later, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the, you know, the, the idea. And really, we should value the life, really, of mosquitoes, because they only live, like, weeks. It doesn't really make sense, but when you're thinking, this is what's happening. When you're really thinking about cosmic accident, cosmic accident, everything's relative, there are no absolutes, and you're trying to have a reason to live and a reason to do what is right, you're just, you're going to come up with this stuff. Because you really smart people are trying to, to give an answer and give a reason for hope. And see, they can't embrace, they cannot embrace Christian hope. They can't embrace Christian hope because they've limited everything to what's here. They cannot even conceive that there's something beyond here. Really, if they conceive of anything beyond here, it's just more of here, but different versions of it. They can't conceive that perhaps there is something way better that eternity can be infinitely valuable. I agree with them. If this is all there is, I'm going to get tired of it eventually. If this is all there is, I'm going to, I, I'm going to become exhausted. I'm, it's, just, it's, just, it's going to become too much. If this is all there is, but if there's something else, if there's something where I know I can see that eternity is not just more of this, but it's something better, all right? I want to listen to that. And so what happens? What happens is it's just this flipping around, this flopping around. It's more sophisticated. It looks cooler because it has spaceships and stuff. But it's just like you're a murderer because you got bit by a snake. Oh, you didn't die. You're a god. It's the same thing because there's no basis for it. It's just this trying to figure stuff out. But if you've rejected truth, and then you try to find the answers to questions when you've actually rejected the answer, that's what it's going to look like. And what's weird about it is, as they're rejecting all of this, and as they're trying to figure it out, they always return to absolutes. Even if it's absolutes for just a short amount of time. And that's how it is. You know, many people will deny absolute truth, and especially if you tell them there's absolute truth, but they will live and they will speak just like it exists. Even this science fiction I was telling you about, it is saying there is something good. There is something valuable. That's why we need to have this philosophy that death makes life valuable. Death makes life good. The reason we have to have that is because we have a concept of good that is absolute. It's still there. It's all there. But if you ever try to tell them or define for them or say, there is good, there is the one who is good, he is the good shepherd, he is Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture, ah, no. Don't define good unless we can change the definition in the future. Cannot be absolute. 
And you hear it. It comes up in, in people's, the way they talk about stuff. They'll say, like, well, it's obvious. Everybody knows we should do this, we shouldn't do that. They make truth dependent upon the situation or upon the opinions or the majority. Let me tell you something. When we understand absolute truth and we understand absolute goodness, we not only have standards for today, we have a destination that we're going to that's not always going to change. What we, some, one of the ways we say it here in the church is we say we're becoming more like Jesus. Now, our understanding of who Jesus is, our understanding of the Word, our understanding of what is good, it changes, but it changes because we're studying truth. It doesn't change because we're sitting back and going, I don't want to believe that anymore. That makes me uncomfortable. The rest of my friends have rejected that. Um, you, know, I, I just, you know, whatever the reason is, I'm going to change it. No, truth doesn't change. My understanding of it might change, and it should change if I'm growing in my faith. But absolute truth, absolute goodness, it actually gives us hope because there's a destination. There's a direction. Kind of what happens now is this kind of stumbling around and, you know, today we're going to say this and tomorrow we're going to say that. We're going to stumble around and, and then say, well, someday we hope we find something. No wonder, just globally, no wonder depression is on the rise. No wonder globally suicide is on the rise. No wonder more and more people are looking for ways to escape this world, whether it's through just, just entertaining themselves to death or whether it's through substance abuse. No wonder all of that's on, on the rise. Because you know what? At least when I'm caught in that virtual reality, I know it was created. I know there's a purpose, and I know there's an end. I get, I step out of that into this world. I don't believe any of that's true. Why not go escape to a world where you know, I can, I can be the expert, be the star, get better, get to level whatever and win. Why not? Because I can't hear. Well, again, we look at this text. We go back to, to, to verse 1 because, and we, and we see that they're on this Isle of Malta. And it's not where they thought they were going to be. They're, they're nowhere near where they thought they were going to be. The storm's blown them off course. But I want us to look at a couple of things before we look at the kind of what I think are the main teaching points today. And I want us to look at what's not there. In this whole section, um, God's not mentioned at all. It's only that they thought he was a God, but not God. Jesus isn't mentioned. In fact, there is no mention here of Paul preaching, teaching, sharing the gospel. I want you to kind of let that spin around in your head for a while. We're going to come back to it in a second. But when we look at this contextually, I want to make sure we understand it's not there. Why not? We'll talk about that. But we can see what happens in this story. They land, they get there. You know, it's almost 300 people. They're exhausted. They're hungry. Well, they just had a meal, but they hadn't eaten in two weeks, so they're probably still hungry. You know, they're wet, they're cold. Then this incident with the snake happens. And then... 
after that they've determined that he's a god, it tells us in verse 7, the, the chief man of the island receives him. And while they're there, Paul finds out about his father, and Paul miraculously heals him. And then other people hear about that, and then they start bringing um, their, their sick there. And then they're, they're leaving. Now, if you read verse 11, you will know they stayed here for three months. They waited out the winter. For three months, they're on this island. But I want, to go, I, want, I want to go back now and say, you know, what is Luke trying to communicate to us? And I think the first thing, which we've already spent a lot of time unpacking, so I'm just going to move through it quickly, that God, out of His grace, reveals the falseness of human beliefs. Out of His grace, He reveals the falseness of human beliefs. As we've said, Luke's already shown kind of the fickleness of their belief. Oh, he must be a murderer because he got bit by a snake. Oh, he must be a god because he survived. But God uses this sleeping snake in the sticks to confront their false beliefs. Now, the islanders, they might not have gotten it. Some of them, I think, did. But some of them probably didn't really get it. They didn't understand how fickle they were being. But Luke knows, his readers do, Luke knows not just, you know, people in Hawaii 2,000 years later are going to read this and go, that's kind of crazy, murderer to God, based on whether he lived or died from a snake bite. It's kind of a snap judgment. Though he might not have known we would do it, but we do. He knew the people back then would. He knew the people back then would read that and go, that don't make no sense. Those island people are nuts. What's wrong with them? But their beliefs, God uses this opportunity to kind of test their beliefs. And it's not just the fickleness of their belief. The problem is, is because they, they, they didn't embrace truth, what they did embrace only left them with a certain number of choices, in this case two, and both choices were wrong. You know, I've, I've said this before, and you've probably heard it before, it's not original to me, but when, when you and someone else is arguing, there are always like at least three possibilities. You're right, the other person's right, which means one's wrong, the other's wrong, or you're both wrong. We never entertain the possibility that both of us are wrong. It's like we've decided all of this situation has reduced down to us two, and there's only two possibilities. Well, in this case, they have two choices, they're both wrong. They never thought that there could be a man, even a prisoner, who would be protected by God. Their only thought was, he's a murderer or he's a God. They didn't have a concept of God that says, God loves people and he takes care of people. Or they'd had no concept of God that they could even conceive that God is trying to tell them something through this incident. That's not their concept. They, they didn't need to hear from God because they already knew. He got bit by a snake. He's obviously a murderer. That's what Dike, the God of justice, goddess of justice is saying. They knew. In their view, the gods... How do you know what the gods want? You know what the gods want because of what happened. You know, I remember in my world history class when I, they were talking about the dynasties in China and, and you know, how did, how did they know that, that the gods favored the, the next dynasty? Because the next dynasty, because they won. That's how. It's so obvious that he favored them, they won. 
That's a lot of people's concepts of God. Unfortunately, that's a lot of Christians' concept of God. That God is only the God of, you know, victories. They, they, they have to win everything. They have to succeed at everything. They can't deal with when God says, no, there's going to be struggles. It's going to be tough. It's not always going to be easy. In fact, if you look at Paul's life, it seems often it's not. But when we, when we reject God, then we, when we reject truth, then we try to figure it out ourselves, we can often come up with more than two choices. We could come up with 37 choices, and what they all have in common is they're all wrong. They all make sense to a certain level, maybe more than a snake bit in, must be a murderer. Maybe we have a more complicated argument, like you know this science fiction show I was talking about, more complex, more philosophical. But it's basically me trying to say, what is truth, what is truth, what is truth, but I refuse to look where truth is. Paul, I mean, God is using Paul to reveal that to them. Luke is showing us that and how he tells us that that's what they're confronted with. I didn't make slides with the action points this week, and, and really all of these kind of are action points within themselves, but, but here's my questions to you, and really that lead to actions. Do we understand the false beliefs in the world? Or do we assume everybody more or less sees things the way we do? Do we understand the false beliefs in the world? A few years ago, we spent a lot of time here at you know, different, different studies, at different age levels, talking about worldviews. Do we understand? In, in April, we're, we're having a Waterhouse conference on, on understanding what woke culture means. What are the implications for Christianity? You hear the term, what does it mean? Where does it come from? What is its goals? Where is it, like, consistent with Christianity? Where is it not? Why should I be worried, or why should I not be worried? Do we understand the false beliefs in the world? Secondly, though, is do we understand God's truth? One of the things we're trying to do more and more is not just teach you God's truth, but teach you how to study God's Word to understand His truth. Do we understand His truth? It's one of the reasons we keep emphasizing more and more that if we're truly believers in Christ, we are disciples. What are disciples? Disciples are people who are following Christ, but they're following Christ in one way by being students of His Word. Understanding more and more God's truth. It's great when people believe, and it's great when they believe, you know, without needing any explanation, understanding. It's great to a certain extent, but it's not really what, what Jesus intended for his followers. He intended that we wouldn't just look at a list and do what's on the list that we would be students disciples of the word and unfortunately a lot of people especially in the church in in the west especially the church in, in my time from you know my time started in the 60s and it could have been before i just wasn't around but their concept of christianity is it's just about being forgiven and establishing a relationship. But the details of the relationship, oh man, God left those kind of arbitrary. So you know what? I can make up whatever I want it to be. No. One of the great failings of the modern church is that we have not had helped people understand it is that we are becoming disciples 
of Christ. Discipleship is not optional, nor is discipleship mandatory. Discipleship should be natural. It should be, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. Teach me more. It should be natural. How can you call someone Lord and say, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'll figure it out on my own. Does that make any sense? It doesn't. It should be natural to us. If we've truly been you know, born again, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and we don't know what's happening because it's so new. It should be natural that we want to know, that we hunger to know, that, you know, John and I, our weekly complaint is, I don't know how we're going to have enough time to teach all these people that want to be taught. Like, that should be something that's just a, just a constant problem to have. It would be a great problem to have. Discipleship should come out of that personal relationship. It shouldn't be something that is kind of an add-on if I want it. That's what I love about this church. I'm not saying everybody gets it and everybody is, is like pushing to, you know, towards discipleship. But what I love about this church is that I think we have a pretty good percentage of people that are, they're at least trying they're at least, you know, getting out of their comfort zone. I used to tell you this, and I haven't said it in a while, but, you know, wherever you think your Christian life is, wherever you think your maturity is, you should at least try to start studying something that pushes you a little bit deeper. How do you know? You know because when you're reading the book, you don't go, Yep, 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 amen, 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 awesome, great, great, awesome. That's how you know. You're reading the book and you're like, I, I, I don't get it. We're so afraid of reading a book that we don't get. Why are you reading books that you already know the stuff? Why are you going to classes? Are you just trying to be that, you know, maybe it is because Hawaii kids are like this, but are you just trying to be the one so you can show like, you know, you're the A-plus student? Yeah, I always go to classes where I already know stuff. Used to drive me crazy when I went to UH and, and I had Japanese class and I would meet some of the students and they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm fluent in Japanese. Why are you in Japanese 101? You're just messing with me. Just making my life hard. Right? But so many people, they, they, I've, been, I've been going to Sunday school for 50 years. I've had Bible study at this level for 50 years. Why are we proud of this? Why are we not saying, is there more than Sunday school? I'm not going to go into this story, but I will tell you, just so you can someday later on ask me, seminary saved my faith. Because I had been studying and learning at a certain level, and it wasn't pride saying, I understood it. I believed it, but if this is all there is to know, I don't need to study anymore. We do this. We live at this certain level. Part of growing is making ourselves uncomfortable in the right way for the right reasons. Know God's truth so that as you understand the world's false beliefs, first of all, you'll know they're false. Second of all, you'll know why they're false and how they contradict Christianity. Third of all, you'll be able to help people who are stuck in those views. You can teach them God's truth. You can connect with them because that's where they are. If you want to see ministry done by Jesus, people only get this half right. They will say, Jesus met sinners where they were. And they use that as 
as an excuse to not share the gospel, just meet sinners where they are, be friends with sinners, do all of this. The rest of that, Jesus met sinners where they were. He refused to leave them there. He did all he could to bring them out of their sin, not to approve and affirm their sin. He didn't go in, judge, 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 judge. He met them in their sin, but he refused to leave them there. We get that half right. Some people just want to be the refuse to leave you, but I'm not going to meet you in your sin. I don't even understand what your sin is. And they just stand over here saying, you should come over here because I'm right. And you are right. But you're like, they should, you should come over here. Other people just get immersed into this, these, you know, the culture of these people and, and they, they just start going, well, you know, if I start sharing the gospel, they're going to feel judged. If I start sharing the gospel, they're not going to want to be friends with me. They're going to push me out. Then you, you're not doing what Jesus did. We, we get this right. We know God's truth. We know the world's lies. And by doing that, we can truly help and love the world as Jesus came to help and love the world. The second point is this, and we see this with Paul, both with Publius and with these other, you know, the, the other people, that out of God's grace, think about this, out of God's grace, I don't think at any time while Paul's on this ship and it's like rocking and it's dark and it's windy and it's raining and it's cold, I don't think at any time he thinks, this is cool because God's taken us to a place where I can serve. No, he's just thinking, God said, I'm going to go to Rome, I'm going to go to Rome. But he ends up here because God was bringing his servant to people in need. That's what God does. Out of grace, God brings his servants to people in need. The people of Malta needed different things. It seems like, you know, because they're on an island, like, they, you know, they didn't have a doctor, even a doctor like Luke. So they had that need. You know, the, the islanders that are around the, the, you know, the fire, there's this kind of almost superstitious, weird kind of sense of what justice is. They had a need. And God does this amazing, weird, strange thing if you're from the Isle of Malta. You're like, wait, the guy that would heal and the guy that would tell us truth was a prisoner on a ship that wrecked right off our shores. Hmm. Action point is this. If you are God's servant, he will bring you to people in need. We, we talk about this here a lot. God doesn't bless us just to bless us. We don't just grow in our faith just to grow in our faith. We don't experience more of the fruit of the Spirit, more of the experience just to experience it. We do it because God wants to use us. And if you really understand and you really have the relationship with God, you're like, you're so incredibly grateful that he does. It's awesome. He wants to use me. Is God using you? Is God using you? Is God bringing you to people in need and you are responding? You might go, yeah, that's awesome. That's what's happening. Great. Good for you. You might be going, no, why not? Well, I don't know exactly why not, but I can think of the general reasons. One is, you're not ready. So go back to point number one, get ready. You're not ready. You'd be overwhelmed. You think you can go in and, and do this, and, and, and it ends up just, just shaking your faith. You're not ready. But part of it could just be this. You just don't see it. 
you don't understand that we're not talking about it has to be through next step that we're, we're feeding people. It doesn't have to be through, through waterhouse conferences. It doesn't have to be through anything that's organized by the church, although we want you to participate in those things, but that God is bringing you to people that I will never encounter, that no one else in this church will encounter that are in need. Meet the need. I brag about my wife here for a second. You know, she goes weekly to help one of our neighbors. And, and she, she goes, spends the morning with him. She meets the need right there. But you know what's sad and I hope is not true of our church? They're not lost people. This is a family that goes to a church. And Cheryl and I simultaneously had the same question. We don't know the answer. I don't want to dig. And it's not a small church. It's not a little struggling house church or whatever. It's a pretty significantly sized church. And both of us are like, why is no one from that church, which is much bigger than our church, how come no one is meeting that need? I don't know. And I'm not judging that church. I'm just saying, I don't want us to be that way. You will hear us pray. John prayed today. Let's not just pray for the people in Turkey or the people in Florida. Let's pray how God is, wants to use us to meet their needs rather than just pray, God, please meet their needs. And God is saying, I'm trying, but you're not listening. And I will tell you, I think, I, I think our church, we're not perfect, but I think it's getting more and more in our DNA that, that, that we want to reach out. We want to help each other. We want to help more and more in the community. The last point, out of grace, God uses his servants to share the gospel. Now, you, go, you know, I said earlier, there's no mention of God or the gospel here. And, you know, there's different thoughts on this, but here's my thought. You want the longer version, listen to Wednesday. Shorter version is this. Luke doesn't have to say it. He doesn't have to say Paul shared the gospel because by this point, in chapter 28, it's obvious he did. Paul was probably the kind of person who couldn't go more than five minutes talking to him without him sharing the gospel, teaching you the word. He's got three months, he's sharing the gospel. There's evidence. Some of the evidence is, well, we have Publius named. Can somebody name for me anyone else who was the chief man of the Isle of Malta? Anybody? No, you can't because it's not that important. As I've said before, I believe when someone is named like this who's not really important, that they're named because they become a believer. We see later on, not just the pattern of Paul, that there's a sign and then there's preaching. The pattern of Jesus, there's a sign and then there's preaching. We not only just have that, we also have at the very end, verse 10, where it says, they honored us. They honored us greatly. They gave us whatever we needed. They lost all their supplies on wrecking their ship. And now when they're about to set sail in three, three months later, they have all their, the, what they need to continue. Luke no longer needed to say this because he knew, the readers knew, what Paul would do. It was natural to Paul. And again, we think about this grace. God brought, you know, we, we talked about this like a couple weeks ago. God brought the greatest evangelist, probably one of the best examples of a Christian, and he let, them, he let him speak to the most powerful people in Caesarea. The religious leaders, the Roman leaders. He let them speak, he let, he let you know, he gave them like this captured, captive audience. And now on this island 
where there's really not that many important people as far as the world was concerned. He brings the same guy there. Action point is simply this. If you are God's servant, he will use you to evangelize. Are you ready? Are you ready? You know, we, we don't always have time to unpack this, but, you know, just let me just try to summarize it, and later on we, we, I can unpack it more. But, you know, I want everything we do at this church to be connected to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. That everything is, is from our love from God and our love for each other and our love for our neighbors but it's also to fulfill the great commandment of making disciples. That doesn't mean every single thing that we do is going to be overtly evangelistic. But it does mean this, that it is always moving towards evangelism. Everything flows from the gospel and everything flows to the gospel. It's not always easy to do. It's easy to lose, to lose your way. I like that more and more of our leadership, more and more of our people involved in, in ministry are getting that because now we can remind each other that we're not here just to serve meals. We're not here just to have, you know, a program. Everything flows from the gospel, and everything flows toward the gospel. Again, it doesn't mean every single thing is overtly evangelistic. It doesn't mean every single event we have, we're going to have an altar call. But we're thinking, where does it fit? Is it a preparatory thing? Is it a way to connect with the, the community to bring them into the potential for, for gospel conversations? Or is it more intentional there to teach, to either train and equip those who already know or to share the gospel with those who don't? Out of His grace, out of His grace, God not only wants to pour blessings on us, out of His grace, He wants to use us. Think about that. Days and weeks ahead, Think what you need. If you need to get ready, if you need help, let us know. We want to help you. We want to equip you. We want to prepare you. If you are prepared, but you just don't know what to do next, talk to us. We may already have opportunities, or we may have to get together and come up with some. Think like that. If we're going to be his church, everything we do, connected to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment.